Turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 24. 2 Chronicles 24. Last week, we were in just a wonderful passage, one of my favorite passages, and I'm, I'm sure many of yours, where we just got to delight in the coronation of King Joash, when, when Jehoiada the high priest led the charge with the good news, that gospel that went out over the land of Judah, that the wicked queen Athaliah had not cut off all the descendants of David, that there was indeed a king who was to be revealed. And we just got this sweet foretaste of the revelation of Jesus, um, the great son of David. And then we witnessed Jehoiada leading as the king and all the people were led in, in covenant together. And we saw that in, in many ways, Jehoiada, the high priest, is carrying out the duties, helping with the duties of the king on his behalf. Not in any way as a usurper. We've seen that Jehoiada risked his life to get a son of David on the throne. He loves the Davidic kingship. But because jo Joash is so young, seven years old, we'll see in our passage today, his early reign looks a great deal like a collaboration between the king and the priest. We're going to see that in our passage this morning. So let's start with 2 Chronicles 24, verses 1 to 14. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada got for him two wives, and he had sons and daughters. After this, Joash decided to restore the house of the Lord, and he gathered the priests and the Levites and said to them, go out to the cities of Judah and gather from all Israel money to repair the house of your God from year to year, and see that you act quickly. But the Levites did not act quickly. So the king summoned Jehoiada the chief and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and Jerusalem the tax levied by Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the congregation of Israel for the tent of testimony? For the sons of Athaliah, that wicked woman, had broken into the house of God and had all used all the dedicated things of the house of the Lord for the balls. So the king commanded, and they made a chest and set it outside the great house of the Lord the gate of the house of the Lord, and proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to bring in for the Lord the tax that Moses, the servant of God, laid on Israel in the wilderness. And all the princes and all the people rejoiced and brought the tax and dropped it into the chest until they had finished. And whenever the chest was brought to the king, uh, king's officers by the Levites, when they saw that there was much money in it, the king's secretary and the officer of the chief priest would come and empty the chest and take it and return it to its place. Thus they did day after day and collected the money in abundance. And the king and Jehoiada gave it to those who had charge of the work of the house of the Lord. And they hired masons and carpenters to restore the house of the Lord and also workers in iron and bronze to repair the house of the Lord. So those who were engaged in the work labored and the repairing went forward in their hands and they restored the house of God to its proper condition and strengthened it. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money before the king and Jehoiada and with it were made utensils for the house of the Lord, both for the service 
and for the burnt offerings and dishes for incense and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord regularly all the days of Jehoiada. Thus far, the word of the Lord. Our author begins uh, the reign of Joash with a, a somewhat positive but kind of foreboding assessment, doesn't he? Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And then we, we do get to see the sweet way that Joash's reign began while Jehoiada was still alive. The young king doesn't seem to be entirely dependent upon the priest. We are told that it's Joash himself who desires that the house of the Lord would be repaired after it's been ransacked and wrecked by Athaliah and all of her family. And Jehoiada and, and the Levites don't seem to love the plan that Joash has put together for collection that would send them out to all the towns to gather money. So Jehoiada is called in and even rebuked a little bit by Joash. And they, then they seem to agree on a preferable plan for collecting for the renovation of the temple. In his concern for the temple, in how much Joash cares about seeing it restored, we once again see Joash as a king who cares about God's promises to David, that the sons of David would see God as father and he would treat them as sons. Joash is leading his people in prioritizing the temple, the place where God can be called upon by his people. And you can see from all those people who were hired for the renovation and all the work that they did that we are meant to see that this was extensive, that this, that this covered everything that was needful. We see this collaboration between Joash and Jehoiada then. We see that they have a mutual concern for each other's office. Just like last week, we saw how deeply Jehoiada, the priest, cared about the son of David reigning on his throne. Now we see how much the son of David cares about the temple where the sacrifices will be offered by the priests. We can see then how pleasing this collaboration is to the people. The people are thrilled with how the priest is lifting up the king and the king is adhering to the law as carried out by the priests. The period of rebuilding the temple for the people of Judah feels a lot like a revival. There's this sense of reformation, of renaissance going on, and we hear that the people are coming. They're coming to the temple. You don't need to go to the towns and gather the money. They'll come to you, and they will give generously for the building of the house of the Lord. They'll even give rejoicingly. They give glory to God because they see the work that the king and the priest are carrying out. So our first point this morning is this, how good it is when the king and priest honor each other, and how painful when one neglects the other's role in wisdom. So at this point, the people are benefiting, they're blessed through the collaborative care of Jehoiada the priest and Joash the king. They praise God for these blessings, but as the introduction to Joash's reign foreshadowed, this period of rejoicing was not going to last. Let's start again at 2 Chronicles 24, verse 15. But Jehoiada grew old and full of days and died. He was 130 years old at his death, and they buried him in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel and toward God and his house. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to the king. Then the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. 
and the wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for this guilt of theirs. Yet he sent prophets among them to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. Then the Spirit of God clothed Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you break the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has forsaken you. But they conspired against him, and by command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness of Jehoiada, Zechariah's father had shown him, but killed his son. And when he was dying, he said, may the Lord see and avenge. At the end of the year, the army of the Syrians came up against Joash. They came to Judah and Jerusalem and destroyed all the princes of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Though the army of the Syrians had come with few men, the Lord delivered into their hand a very great army because Judah had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus they executed judgment on Joash. When they had departed from him, Leaving him severely wounded, his servants conspired against him because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David. But they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. Those who conspired against him were Zabad, the son of Shimeath the Ammonite, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith the Moabite. Accounts of his sons and of the many oracles against him and of the rebuilding of the house of God are written in the story of the book of the kings, and Amaziah his son reigned in his place. Thus far the word of the Lord. So Joash, his turn, his turn away from wisdom reminds us a lot of Rehoboam, doesn't it? That old wisdom from the mature and tested counselor who loves the word of the Lord is abandoned Although in this case, it's because of Jehoiada's death, and in the the place of the old advisor comes new wisdom. Not just new advisors, but new wisdom. And now, we see Joash, the same king who restored the temple, happily leading the people into idolatry. And God's blessing is removed. His just wrath is placed upon the people. Now, Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, is the last of many prophets, and he comes and makes plain to the people, look what has happened. You do not prosper because of your idolatry. God uses this priest as a prophet, but Joash, now clearly refuting his own past allegiance to Jehoiada, presides over the killing of his son. Before he dies, Zechariah publicly calls on God to avenge, and God does avenge. The Syrians come up against Judah, and we see a reversal of what we usually see in Chronicles. Usually we get to see the smaller army of Judah overcome a greater enemy because God is on their side, but now we hear that God wishes to execute judgment, and it is the smaller army of the Syrians that overcomes the larger army of Judah. So as we have seen time and time again, what is consistent is that the Lord is always sovereign. The Lord is always working the outcome for his own glory. And then, after the battle is lost, Joash is assassinated. Quite possibly by some of the very advisors who turned him away from God. Allying with those who want to prosper in this world doesn't just fail, but It's the very people who manipulate you that are often ready to destroy you. 
We see this warning throughout Chronicles that to ally yourselves with the wisdom of the world puts yourself in the hands of those who are not just happy to lead you astray, but hate you in their hearts and would see you ruined for their benefit. So how do the people feel ultimately about the reign of Joash? They do give him a burial, but he is not given the honor that was given to Jehoiada the priest. Jehoiada was buried among the Davidic kings. Joash was not. Even though many people followed him in his idolatry, they themselves could see by the end of his reign what had happened from him leading them away from the wisdom of the priests and ignoring those many prophets and how that led to God bringing judgment against them. So, This rounds out our first point. We see how true it is, how good it is when the king and the priest honor each other, how painful when one neglects the other's role and wisdom. We have already also seen evidence for our second point in those prophets, including Zechariah, who was as much a prophet as a priest who came and warned Joash. Our second point is this, how good it is when the king acts on God's prophetic word, how painful when the prophet's wisdom is ignored. This is demonstrated clearly in the reign of Joash's son, Amaziah. So let's read 2 Chronicles 25, 1 to 13. Amaziah was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadon of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. And as soon as the royal power was firmly his, he killed his servants who had struck down the king, his father. But he did not put their children to death, according to what was written in the law in the book of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not die because of their children, nor children die because of their fathers, but each shall die for his own sin. Then Amaziah assembled the men of Judah and set them by fathers' houses under commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and all Judah and Benjamin. He mustered those 20 years old and upward and found that they were 300,000 choice men fit for war, able to handle spear and shield. He hired also 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. But a man of God came to him and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all these Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why should you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or cast down. And Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents that I have given to the army of Israel? The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then Amaziah discharged the army that had come to him from Ephraim to go home again. And they became very angry with Judah and returned home in fierce anger. But Amaziah took courage and led out his people and went to the Valley of Salt and struck down 10,000 men of Seir. The men of Judah captured another 10,000 alive and took them to the top of a rock and threw them down from the top of the rock, and they were all dashed to pieces. But the men of the army, whom Amaziah sent back, not letting them go with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 people in them and took much spoil." So once again, the chronicler begins the reign of a king with a pretty tepid assessment. Just like we had heard that Joash was faithful to God for a while. Now we hear that Amaziah was faithful, not with a whole heart. 
As readers, we feel like we're watching a decline in the kingship. Where are the great men? The men who wholeheartedly submitted to God, who did what he loved and said no matter what. At best now, we get mediocre men. We get fine kings who do well sometimes. Like Joash, we first see Amaziah desiring to act righteously. We see that in how he responds to his father's assassination. His refusal to kill the children of his father's assassins takes courage and takes trust in God because he's willing to leave alive those who would have revenge upon him because he knows from the law that you cannot punish anyone for sins that they have not committed. In his battle with Sarah, we get a better picture of Amaziah's faltering faithfulness, of his faltering wisdom. He does muster an army, but he includes men that he's hired from the northern kingdom, from Israel. Like Jehoshaphat, his ancestor, Amaziah is wrongly treating these Israelites like they are his spiritual kin. He's treating them like men who are on God's side because of their shared history and relationship with Judah. But God raises up a prophet who warns him, these men do not fear God. They do not love God. To trust in them to win the battle is not to trust God to conquer his enemies. So ultimately, Amaziah does listen to the prophet rather than the pragmatic wisdom of the world. He does take some convincing. It's a pretty trivial, paltry objection that he gives about the hundred talents, suggesting that he's nervous to go ahead and trust God completely. But ultimately, if he has to choose, he would rather have God on his side than these Israelites. So he does release them, and God does give Amaziah victory. But the people still feel the sting of Amaziah's folly. Forgiven sin can still have consequences in this world. We can be glad that God is gracious that our sins will not be remembered in his kingdom, but we might still see the wicked effects of even sin that is forgiven in this world. Those Israelites, angry to be discharged, reap havoc on Judah while Amaziah is away at war. So the people themselves experience here both the benefit of Amaziah ultimately heeding the wisdom of God, but also the pain of his failure in not recognizing that wisdom earlier as he should have done. So this is our second point this morning, how good it is when the king acts on God's prophetic word, how painful when the prophet's wisdom is ignored. This continues to be clear in the rest of Amaziah's reign. Let's read to the end of chapter 25. After Amaziah came from striking down the Edomites, he brought the gods of the men of Seir and set them up as his gods and worshiped them, making offerings to them. Therefore the Lord was angry with Amaziah and sent to him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of a people who did not deliver their own people from your hand? But as he was speaking, the king said to him, have we made you a royal counselor? Stop, why should you be struck down? So the prophet stopped, but said, I know that God is determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not listened to my counsel. Then Amaziah, king of Judah, took counsel and sent to Joash, this is a different Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come, let us look one another in the face. And Joash, the king of Israel, sent word to Amaziah, king of Judah. 
A thistle on Lebanon sent to a cedar on Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son for a wife. And a wild beast of Lebanon passed by and trampled down the thistle. You say, See, I have struck down Edom, and your heart has lifted you up in boastfulness. But now stay at home. Why should you provoke trouble so that you fall, and you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not listen, for it was of God, in order that he might give them into the hand of their enemies, because they had sought the gods of Edom. So Joash, king of Israel, went up, and he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another in battle at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his home. And Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, Beth Shemesh, and brought him to Jerusalem, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem for 400 cubits, from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, and he seized all the gold and silver, and all the vessels that were found in the house of God, and in the care of Obed-Edom. He seized all the treasuries of the king's house, also hostages, and he returned to Samaria." Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the deeds of Amaziah, from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? From the time when he turned away from the Lord, they made a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled, fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and put him to death there. And they brought him upon horses, and he was buried with his fathers in the city of David." So like, like his father before him, any early wisdom that we see in Amaziah eventually gives way to total idolatry. After God clearly wins the battle for his people, Amaziah brings home the losing gods. The gods that Yahweh has just clearly triumphed over. He brings them back to Judah and he starts worshiping them. Once again, God sends his prophet to Amaziah, but now Amaziah is too blinded by sin. He will not listen to God's prophet. And again, the prophet warns that Amaziah will be destroyed for his rejection of God's prophetic word. But Amaziah now is clearly giving himself too much credit. He doesn't want to listen to God's word. He wants to go and fight Israel. And the king of Israel actually warns him, Amaziah, you're getting a little big for your boots here. And Amaziah should have actually agreed with the king of Israel on this point, because he would have known that he has never won a battle in his life. God alone brings victory to Judah. But now that he is forsaking the wisdom of the prophets, Amaziah is starting to define his kingship by those worldly kings around him, and he's starting to take credit for his own power, just like those worldly kings do. He doesn't define his kingship by God's word. He wants to defeat Israel's king because he wants to be like Israel's king. Often when we neglect God's wisdom, we may still look like we are at war with this world, but in reality, we are often just competing with worldly people for what they want in this life power, influence, and gain in this worldly kingdom according to worldly standards, rather than entrusting ourselves to God's reign and his wisdom. This is what happened to Amaziah when he ultimately goes to war with Israel. And so just as the prophet predicted, even as the king of Israel has warned, Amaziah is defeated, and we see just one of the most horrific defeats that Judah has faced the Israelites break down the wall of Jerusalem. They ransack the city. They plunder the temple. 
which gives us a glimpse not only into the wickedness of Amaziah's sin, but just the utter depravity that Israel has fallen into by forsaking God for so many generations. Again, the state of the temple shows us the state of the king and the people. And like Joash, Amaziah is assassinated. This seems to be a retaliation for the evil Amaziah had brought on the people by turning away from God. The story of the kings of Judah is starting to look a little too much like the story of the kings of Israel. Their own people resenting them, wanting to have them killed. The only difference here is God's continued commitment to his promises to David. So our third point this morning, which we have seen in both the reigns of Joash and Amaziah, is this. God strikes down the reign of those kings that ignore his law and his word, who ignore his law, which is the priests, and ignore his prophets, his word. So we have seen this clearly in both the reigns of Joash and Amaziah. These kings demonstrate something we've seen throughout all of Chronicles, how good it is for the people for the God's people as well as the king. When the priesthood and the law, when the prophets and the word of God are walking in lockstep with the ruler, with the king, and how horrible and disastrous it is for the king and the people when the priesthood and the prophets are moving in a different direction than the kingship. God will not leave his people under rulers who forsake his word and his priesthood. The readers of Chronicles, the post-exilic Israelites, would have recognized this clearly as well. Not just from looking back on the history of the kings, but they would have seen this in their own experience. They were currently being called back to the Lord as they were brought back from exile. And we know that Zerubbabel of the line of David was the governor that Nehemiah was very influential, but what we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that the, the, the brunt work, the major work of leading the people, of showing them where to go, is being done by Ezra, the priest, as he teaches the law, and then by those who are proclaiming the word of God, who are preaching. Zerubbabel and Nehemiah are very much enforcing what the law says, what the prophets proclaim. So the readers of Chronicles could see, they could understand clearly that when the roles of prophet, priest, and ruler, or king, are working in concert, the people enjoy God's favor. His temple would be open to them. They could rest in his promises. Likewise, it was clear that when there was disharmony between prophet, priest, and king, between the word, between the temple and sacrifices and the ruler, then they were in trouble. Likewise, Israel had historical examples where these roles were so beautifully knit together. We saw that in the collaboration of Jehoiada and and Joash. We see it in the kings who adhere to the prophets, but sometimes we see them so, so perfectly in harmony that these roles start to join together in one man. Moses was a prophet who judged God's people and was close with his brother Aaron, the high priest. David, the king, was also a prophet. We have his prophetic words in the book of Psalms. And the prophets looked forward to a day when these roles of prophet, priest, and king were so united, so in harmony, walked so much in lockstep that they would all meet together and find fulfillment in the Messiah. 
David himself prophesied in Psalm 110 of God telling the king, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind that you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah looked forward to a day when the priest would be crowned. He says, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is the branch, the branch from the stump of Jesse, he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord, just like Joash did. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both and the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, uh, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and shall help to build the temple of the Lord and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. On that special day, when the branch oversees the building of a temple for God, that bud from the stump of David, from the stump of Jesse comes, on his throne will sit a priest. A priest on the throne of the Davidic king. And on that day, God's people will be so blessed that that blessing will extend all over the world when those come even from afar to build the temple for him. Who will this king be that is so faithful to the word of the Lord? And then Jesus comes and beyond expectation beautifully harmonizes what it means to be the perfect prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, Jesus not only spoke words, true words from God, but he himself was called the word of God, that which reveals, which proceeds from God himself, the greatest revelation of God in history. And then Hebrews tells us that he is the fulfillment of all prophecies as the great prophet himself. As Hebrews begins, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Did you just see what the author of Hebrews did in four verses? The great and final prophecy from God makes purification for sins. He's doing priestly work here, and then what happens? Then he's seated on a throne. The final great prophecy makes the greatest sacrifice to become the greatest king. And Hebrews tells us, fulfills God's prophecy through David in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And our brother Cal this morning read some of that beautiful exposition of the priestly ministry of the great prophet and great king, Jesus Christ. So how is he able to do this? How is he able to bring together all of these roles? How can a king be a priest? Well, because the great king, the son of God himself, was born a human like us. 
This is how he perfectly revealed God to us and how he's able to be the perfect mediator between God and us. Mediation is a work of priests to stand between God and the people, and he is our intercessor, the one who comes before God on our behalf. He can do this as a priest because, like the Old Testament priests, he comes representing us in God's presence with a sacrifice. And as Cal read, he brings the one and only perfect sacrifice, his blood shed on the cross for us. And this perfect sacrifice atoned, covered, paid for all the sins to reconcile us to God for everyone who trusts in Jesus. And now Jesus intercedes for those who are covered by his blood in the very presence of God. That's where Jesus is right now. He is here over his church interceding for his people right now in God's presence, reigning on a throne, our prophet, priest, and king. That is our final point this morning. In Christ, the roles of prophet, priest, and king are brought together for the perfect blessing of God's people. The Jehoiadas, the King Joashes, the Zechariahs, the Amaziahs, all of them are like streams. They are tributaries that are flowing together and they unite in Christ. The final eternal prophet, priest, and king. No longer do we, God's people, need to worry about whether the king will forsake the word of the prophets. No longer do we need to worry about whether the sacrifices will be neglected, will not be offered, whether the king will get in the way of the priestly ministry. We can rest secure. We are confident that our king will uphold the blood sacrifice for our intercession, that our king loves God's word. Why? Because our king is himself the priest who offered the sacrifice. He is himself the great prophet. And so you can confidently Entrust yourself to that king. Even now, he who has brought together this role of priest and king, what is he doing? He is overseeing the building of his temple with those who are brought from afar to build it. We ourselves as living stones being built up as a temple for God, a dwelling place for him as we are filled with his spirit. So if you are here, if you are here and you are not a Christian, it is not only true that your sins are not forgiven and that you are under God's wrath. That is true. This is what it means to be an enemy of God. But even in this life, do you not know that to not be a Christian is to be dependent upon the things of this world? Your hope depends on people who get to define for themselves what is good, what is wise, what is right. You are at the mercy of ideas and cultures and leaders that rest on no certain truth, no law, no true unchanging word. Have you even seen that in your own heart? What it actually looks like to follow where your heart leads. What a fickle master that is, how changeable 
how truth changes in your heart, how what is good changes in your heart, how it, how it runs against even your own conscience and leaves you at war with yourself. It's just a foretaste of that lostness that will be felt for eternity when we are cut off from God in wrath. There is nowhere apart from God to rest, nowhere to feel secure. But then, to be a Christian, to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, is to be forgiven, to have your sins forgotten. But it is not only to be forgiven, Those who are forgiven are forgiven because they are justified in God's sight. Not just treated like you didn't sin, treated like Jesus, like his perfect life deserves because he went as your priestly sacrifice to the cross. God saw him there if you trust in him as you. You are united with him on his death on the cross and he took the whole punishment for your sin so that you could also be united with him in his resurrection, in his life and treated just as Jesus deserves to be treated for as long as he deserves to be treated that way forever and ever. So as one who is in Christ, you are forgiven, you are justified, you are cleansed, even glorified. But do you not see in the midst of all this, the greatest gift of all of these is that you get Jesus himself. You are united with Jesus, the perfect prophet, priest, and king, the one who kept God's word, who fulfilled the demands of the law for his people, who stands in God's presence with deep affection for those who are united to him, interceding for them with the blood that he himself shed for them. And he, the one who loves his people so, is the king of the universe who will reign forever. We get Christ. How do you know that Christ will reign forever? Because God is never going to need to stop the reign of Jesus like he did with Joash and Amaziah. He will never need to protect his people from their king. We don't need to fear that God is going to remove his blessing from the kingdom of Jesus because the king has suddenly forsaken him. God will never need to remove Jesus. He will never need to raise up another son of David. This one reigns forever. Because Jesus is so faithful to God's law, to his priesthood, to his word, because the king is himself, the priest and prophet. It was his prophetic and priestly work that secured his kingship forever. And so, we can be confident that God is not angry with Jesus. God is not just happy with Jesus. It is the joy of the Father to give all glory to the Son, And God will see the day when Jesus is revealed as king and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And so do not wait. Call out to him. Just trust in him. Is there a more perfect place to put your hope? Is there a more eternal, lasting place? Is there a more loving one than this Savior who is King? Trust in his sacrifice. 
Trust that he died and rose again. Declare that I would love for this to be for me, though I have done nothing to deserve it. Trust in that true word that he proclaimed, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life and receive him. All you do, receive him. As the perfect word from God, your mediator, your intercessor, your king, and rest secure in his reign forever and ever. Today, we are going to gather as the people of God, as a body that shows this wonderful temple being built by our Lord Jesus Christ. We gather today as he taught us to gather, as he showed us how, to visibly show who has been reconciled to God, who has been united to Jesus, who has received that priestly ministry, that sacrifice of atonement, that body broken and blood spilled on the cross. We get to look and see those people gathered around his table who now are his family. If you are not a Christian, do not join us at this table. This is for those who have been reconciled to him, who have been baptized into his people, who now call him king. Instead, I would urge you today, trust in him without delay. Believe he died and rose for your sins. Believe he is reigning now as your king and will be revealed in the future as yours forever. There is no moment too soon. Trust in his death and resurrection and reigning. Then we will delight to see you baptized. We will delight to see you as a part of this family. And then you can join us in the future around this table. This is also only for those who have reflectively declared their faith in Christ, as the apostle teaches. We would ask that children refrain from taking the supper as those who are under the care and the supervision of their parents until they can make their profession be received in baptism and as a part of this family as well. I would now like to call the elders forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the perfect ministry of Jesus, for our perfect prophet, priest, and king. We thank you that we do not need to worry whether the king will forsake the sacrifices, will forsake your temple. We do not need to worry whether he will ignore your word and wisdom because Jesus is himself your word and wisdom, and he was himself the sacrifice of atonement that he now presents as priest in your presence. God, if there is anyone here who is not able to rest in that perfect eternal ministry of Jesus, our great savior and king who is even our friend, Father, I pray that they would trust in him without delay. And for those who are his, God, may our hope be secure. May our rest be in him until our faith becomes sight. And as we take up the bread and the cup together, may we be reminded and our faith strengthened by the spirit of this wonderful sacrifice, this priestly ministry of our savior, of our perfect revelation from God, through which we receive him as our king forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The elders are now going to